This is Policy Outsider. I'm Joel Torado, Director of Communications at the Rockefeller Institute and guest host for today's episode. The New York State 2021 legislative session wrapped up late last week with a handful of firearm bills passing the Senate and Assembly. On today's episode of Policy Outsider, Joe Popkin, Executive Director of the Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium and Director of Policy and Practice at the Rockefeller Institute, and Nick Simons, Project Coordinator at the Rockefeller Institute, discuss the major firearm bills that will be sent to the governor, the issues they address, and how research can best support policymakers as they seek to disrupt the cycle of firearm-involved violence. Joe, Nick, thanks for being on the show. Before we jump into our discussion of the firearm bills that passed in the Senate and Assembly during the 2021 legislative session, Nick, could you give us a sense of the gun violence issue in New York State? Uh, sure, Joel. Thanks for for having me on and having Joe on as well. Um, I'll start with maybe some high level firearm violence statistics in the state, um, and that might help set the table for the rest of this conversation. So, if you look at specifically New York City data for the first six months of this year, we're seeing both higher shooting victims and higher shooting incidents from last year. And last year was a large spike from 2019, which um, the year before. So th- these rates of firearm violence are only increasing. Uh, as an example, there have been over 600, 602 shooting incidents since January of this year, compared to only 358 in the first five months of 2020. So that's almost a 70% increase. There's also been a sharp spike in shooting victims. Uh, we're at 687 since January of this year, compared to only 409 from January to the beginning of June last year, also a 68% increase. In 2020, the state as a whole saw a 75% increase in shooting incidents and an 82% increase in shooting victims. Shootings in the upstate metro areas like Albany um, went up 110%. That was for Albany specifically. Um, Shootings in Buffalo went up uh, 96%. In Rochester, 70%. In Syracuse, 72%. Uh, So far, from from January to April of 2021, that's the, the data I'm looking at, stopped in April, Shootings across the state are up 46% year to date from last year. And I'm sure we'll, we'll speak about this particular statistics when we unpack um, some of the legislation from this year, but the rate of illegal firearms being recovered in crime is also up um, over the previous years. So in that respect, there's many aspects of the firearm violence issue in New York state that are converging at this particular moment, which explains the breadth of action from both the executive and the legislative branches so far. And and would, is this a is this a New York thing or is this a, a national uptick? Yeah. So Nick, that's great, and and I think we have seen it across the country, really, in terms of gun violence after the pandemic induced lockdowns of last year. Uh, last year was, as Nick described it, you know, really a record year in term, in terms of shootings and shooting incidents. And now we've seen that trend carry over into this year, which has been problematic from a number of different perspectives, but really problematic to policymakers who might have been viewing this as, you know, a one-off year of, okay, the pandemic was so unique and dis- disrupted society so much that we're getting back to normal. And unfortunately, what we see is people getting back to 
you know, normal social activities, but also a uh, in high, higher and heightened rate of shooting incidents. So I think we have been looking um, and talking to uh, practitioners from around the country who are describing very, very similar trends. And so, Nick, the, the figures that you described um, or that you presented, those are in 2020 and 2021. Uh, before that, in the few years before that, gun violence in the state trending upward, downward, yeah, so so New York, unlike some of the other areas of the country, and we have a great um, gun violence dashboard that that maps this out, uh, both in terms of homicides and suicides, New York was on on the downward trend, at least as it relates to to population adjusted metrics, which is how the CDC um, Centers for Disease Control at the federal level uh, charts these statistics. You can always look at raw counts, but I think population uh, adjusted numbers make sense. So so New York was. Um, in a better place than it obviously was in the, the 1990s, for example, but was also trending down within the past decade. So uh, in a lot of ways, these these recent couple of years are are very concerning um, and, and buck the trend in many ways. In other states in, in, in the South, like Louisiana or in the Midwest, like Missouri, they were seeing higher suicides, firearm suicides, firearm homicides. So it's not necessarily uh, changing a trend there, but as Joe said, across the country, there's increased violence. Even some of the places that we're seeing those upticks are now seeing them exponentially uh, quicker than they had been. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, I think the 20-year relatively uninterrupted trend of declining firearm violence mortality was uh, reversed. And we saw that starting to happen a little bit. 2019 and 2018 obviously had a lot of firearm-involved deaths. Many of them were attributable to suicides. But now we've seen um, more homicides uh, ticking up. And that's obviously what has caused a lot of um, you know consternation, but also a lot of focus on the issue of gun violence in communities. Um, and that, I think, was really one of the impetuses for um, the legislator taking up some bills as recently as last week when the legislative session ended. So we see this uptick over the past, you know, 2020, 2021. It's a lot of 20s in there when you say both dates consecutively. <laughs> uh, do we have a sense of the causes of this uptick in violence? There's a lot of discussion and debate in the academic community and in the practitioner community. I mean, I think you see media reports um, pointing to criminal justice reforms, from the societal pressures of the COVID response and the shutdown. Um, but the simple fact is that no one really knows and has the crystal ball into what the root cause um, of this recent uh, gun violence uh, is. However, while the researchers continue to unpack the evidence, crunch data, do surveys, um, policymakers, legislators, practitioners um, have to grapple with the problem of gun violence that's here today. And so what we have been doing at the Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium here at Rockefeller uh, Institute is looking at law and policymaking as a way of tracking over time legislative interest, executive priorities. And so we had in 2020 put out an analysis of 2018 and 2019 bills that were introduced on firearms and categorized them in different uh, typologies or different types to look at where were legislators and the executive focusing their energies to combat firearm violence? And that same type of analysis and template is something that we're doing for 2020 and 2021. We'll be able to share some findings as they come. But what was really notable is that over the past week with the end of the legislative session, we saw the state legislator, both the Senate and Assembly, take up 
you know, roughly half a dozen bills uh, that all were to combat the firearm um, epidemic that we see right now. And, uh, and so those things were items, you know, that ranged from firearm specific uh, pro- prohibitions for individuals all the way through combating new technologies. So I think we can unpack a little bit of what we saw them tackle at the end of this session, which might provide insight into what is going to happen next year um, on, in legislative activity. Well, that sounds like a natural pivot into what happened uh, this legislative session. Um, Nick, maybe you can give us uh, an overview of of the bills that made their way through the the assembly in the Senate and and what ended up passing. Surely, surely. So I think the the natural place to start um, is another area where we've been doing a lot of work lately is with ghost guns. Um, we did just release a policy brief um, in the last couple of months talking about ghost guns, where there's been some state action, there's been some federal action. Um, specifically in this session, they, I guess I should say what ghost guns are for anyone listening who doesn't know. Um, ghost guns are homemade firearms that don't have unique serial numbers. Um, and as a result, cannot be traced by by law enforcement when they're used in crime. So in a traditional situation, law enforcement uses the serial number of a firearm to find out the manufacturer, the retailer, the first owner of a firearm, the transferees after that first owner to connect a, a suspect um, to a firearm that's recovered in a crime. Um, and ghost guns make this a lot harder. They're not considered firearms, so they don't require background checks when you're purchasing them. And that's kind of the context that the legislators this year in New York were using when they when they wrote these these bills. Um, and both of them, I think, were actually introduced in a previous session. So this is something that's been on their mind for a while. Um, the first one is a Kaplan and Levine bill, the Scott J. Beagle Unfinished Receiver Act. Um, and these bills, in, including the Hoyleman and Rosenthal bill that I'll talk about after, are, are very interrelated and they address some of the similar similar aspects of the issue, but also define the issue uh, in, in a bit of a different way. So that bill defines unfinished frames and receivers, which are the essential pieces in these homemade firearm kits that then are turned into ghost guns. Um, and they define it as material that has been shaped or formed for the purpose of becoming a functional frame through drilling or other means. And again, this is how the ghost guns start. Unfinished parts that need that slight adjustment at home to become ghost guns. Um, the frame itself is just the lower half of the firearm. They, this bill also, specifically the Kaplan and Levine bill, also prohibits the possession of unfinished frames and receivers by those people who aren't licensed gunsmiths. Um, a gunsmith, and I'm paraphrasing here to save an extra long uh, definition, is any person, corporation, or company who engages in the business of repairing, assembling, cleaning, engraving, or who performs any mechanical operation on firearms. So these gunsmiths are licensed by the state. Uh, This would not include hobbyists or people at home that are performing these actions. Uh, And then the last function of the bill is that it creates crimes of criminal sale for those unfinished frames of receivers. So again, new definitions, prohibits possession of these unfinished frames of receivers by anyone who's not a gunsmith, creates a crime for criminal sale. The Hoyleman bill does very similar things it, although it, it defines these unfinished frames and receivers as ghost guns, it requires them to be serialized. Serialized means imprinting or engraving that serial number we spoke about before that would make solving crimes much easier um, and also requires the, the gunsmiths who will be handling these unfinished frames and receivers to register them with the state police uh, in order to, to trace them. So quickly important to note that the Department of Justice published a, a proposed rule at the federal level that would address some of these uh, some of these uh, provisions that are in these new bills, these federal regulations, 
would require serialization of ghost guns, require purchasers to pass background checks, impose requirements on sales, record retention. Um, it does much of what these bills would do. However, the chief difference is at a federal level, it's still legal for individuals to make unserialized firearms at home for personal use, as long as those individuals aren't selling or transferring those unmarked, uh, unfinished parts. New York wouldn't allow that. Uh, only gunsmiths can possess these unmarked parts, which is just a, a small difference. Um, but states like Rhode Island um, and Hawaii also prohibits the possession of ghost guns generally, uh, while places like Connecticut, New Jersey place restrictions similar to New York on ghost guns, uh, but allow for possession. What are the differences between the DOJ's proposed rule and the bill passed by the Senate and Assembly? And, and why would legislators take action on this issue if it is being addressed by federal policy? Yeah, they do. They do similar things. I think the the most important thing to note here is that the proposed rule won't be final for several more months. So the the idea here is that New York legislators are addressing the issue um, instead of waiting for federal action. And I would also just say that given the recent experience with changing federal administrations, we've seen that um, different administrations can have different priorities. And when President Trump was in office, his um, uh, DOJ did not make this regulation and did not, you know, go out of their way to combat ghost guns uh, in the same way that Biden has now committed his Department of Justice to to do. So I think, you know, the New York State legislator acting on this front is a little bit of um, trying to have some consistency and and to not re- be reliant upon the federal government's definition, which could change if uh, with with another administration. And this is something we talked about um, when I did a podcast on ghost guns was the areas of of or unforeseen gaps that could appear in a proposed rule once it goes into enforcement. I think that these New York state laws only serve to to bolster that effort and try to fill in some of those gaps should they appear. It also helps in terms of, you know, disproportionately the criminal justice system is is locally administered, right? You see police when you're driving down the street, they pull over, give you a ticket, same with state police. You know, you're not often getting pulled over by federal police for, for speeding. And similarly here, when you're talking about who's most likely to come into contact with a ghost gun, it's going to be lo- local law enforcement, state law enforcement, um, who may view it as a... Um, a jurisdictional issue and, and not be able to um, as adequately uh, enforce the, the federal law as they see it. Uh, and so it really does create a another opportunity and just reinforce that ghost guns, you know, need to be tracked and need to be treated like other firearms. Great. So um, that's the, the ghost gun portion of what was accomplished uh, by the New York State Legislature. Um, but I know there's there there's more. So what else? Yeah, so there was a few other ones. One that's really interesting and that I think people are going to be debating and digesting for quite some time is this firearm industry immunity bill. So uh, Senator Myrie and Assemblymember Fahey um, passed what is really a manufacturer's responsibility bill, and it is all predicated on the federal Congress had enacted in 2005 the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and that act shields from civil liability most gun manufacturers in the gun industry. And that civil liability shield is not applied to most other, if, if any, um, goods that, that are provided by manufacturers or sellers, except for firearms. And so that shield has... Uh, 
kept manufacturers from being held civilly liable, being sued um, whenever their products create a danger, hazard, uh, or create harm. And so this bill um, is an attempt to have a state law that pierces that immunity. And it does so in ways that are... um, you know, novel in terms of law and policy. So it amends the state's general business law to create a public nuisance that's defined as the dangers to safety and health that are caused by the sale, manufacturing, distribution, importation, and marketing of firearms. And then having created that public nuisance, use that as grounds for the attorney general, for different municipalities, and for individuals to sue manufacturers and sellers um, who don't abide by certain best practices related to securing their firearms or making sure that they're only selling to people who lawfully can have the firearms. Um, And so it's really designed to create an opportunity and one that hasn't been afforded since 2005 to individuals and to governments to hold um, manufacturers and firearm sellers uh, more accountable. And the reason why I say this is going to be debated a lot is because there's um, been several other challenges. And most notably in 2008, the city of New York had sued a number of gun manufacturers and gun dealers um, for a very similar concept, and it was uh, dismissed upon appeal. The creators of this bill are are trying a very similar strategy, but um, are going to be creating the express legislative intent of, no, we, did, we mean for this bill to create this condition to allow individuals to, to make claims against uh, gun sellers and gun manufacturers. And so um, it is going to be sent to the governor for um, you know, either sign, veto, or potential chapter amendments. I think there are going to be a lot of liability issues that are discussed, um, a lot of federalism issues. You know, is this preempted? Um, will it be challenged right away? What would the federal judiciary think um, and how will they debate it? And so I think this is going to be one that um, really is a national conversation starter around liability. Um, and it's something that President Joe Biden had campaigned to repeal this congressional um, act, this uh, Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act. And so uh, it is going to definitely be in the news and uh, definitely something that we're, we're watching closely. And there's there's two more bills, I think, just to hit. Um, and Joel, you may have questions afterward, but I'll just stick these in here. Um, there's a Kavanaugh and Pollen bill that prohibits the sale, purchase, or transfer of firearms to anyone with an outstanding warrant for a felony or serious offense. Um, that's pretty straightforward. That's the one big provision in the bill. And there's a Gianaris and Richardson bill that would require the Division of Criminal Justice Services, the DCJS, to publish quarterly reports on firearms, rifles, shotguns that are used in crimes in New York State. So beginning October 1, 2021, according to the bill, the reports would include, uh, at the very least, the city and state, or excuse me, the county and state of origin of the firearm, the county and state where the firearm was purchased, whether the firearm was purchased by the perpetrator of the crime or by another individual, And lastly, whether the perpetrator has a license or a permit to possess such a firearm. Um, And this bill is interesting because I think it will involve more law enforcement and criminal justice agencies than just DCJS. I'm sure state police will be involved to some extent, maybe folks on the local side. While it's seemingly a narrow scope for for a bill, there are likely a good amount of players not explicitly stated uh, who will be involved. And from a research perspective, it's great, right? It's more data. Uh, It gives the public the ability to learn about the issue. It gives legislators further uh, grounds and further evidence to legislate in the future. Um, So in that respect, this this is one that I'm I'm really excited about personally. And are there 
existing uh, reporting requirements for DCJS? This, 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 this is an yeah. expansion of reporting requirements. Yeah, DCJS has a bunch of statutorily required reports. They also do a bunch of discretionary reports. Um, they have several on their website related to gun violence, but this would be added to that list. Um, but just to circle back on the warrants bill, that's actually very similar to what the governor proposed in his state of the state. And this is, again, coming from the Trump administration when in 2017, the U.S. DOJ had narrowly interpreted a background check provision that was called the fugitive of justice provision to be that if you had right. an outstanding warrant, um, it was only held up. Uh, against you to prohibit you from uh, collecting a firearm or, or purchasing or possessing one if you fled from one state to another for the purpose of evading prosecution. So you could have a warrant out for your arrest. And as long as you didn't meet the category of fleeing prosecution across state lines, you could have passed a NICS check, the background check that's set up by the federal government. So obviously that loophole was something that the state wanted to remedy. And so the governor had identified the issue, I believe, last year, and then this year had uh, set forth a legislative remedy um, in his executive budget, which was um, not in the enacted budget, but then became this uh, the Kavanaugh-Pollin bill um, on outstanding warrants. And so, again, it will, since it's now reflected as a, a crime in state law, be reported to NICS and would prevent people um, who have this type of warrant from being able to purchase or possess a firearm. Right. And this was also one of Biden's policy um, platforms during during his campaign was to to end the fugitive from justice loophole. So we could see something at the federal government if they move. I want to just circle back briefly to the the immunity bill. Um, I'm a, a gun manufacturer. Uh, you didn't know that about me. <laughs> and I am selling these firearms that I anticipate are going to be used by people for whatever recreational purpose they would use their firearm for. Um, I have no reason to believe that my weapons are going to end up in the hands of criminals. So what is the reasoning behind putting in place uh, this law that would hold me accountable for just engaging in a normal at least what I perceive to be a normal sale to a consumer? It's a great question. I, I think it's, and it's one for the courts, quite honestly, but the the rationale is that, you know, and this is really the the argument, when you look at the majority of guns that are used in crimes of New York, somewhere between 70 to 85% of them are from other states. And they're made through straw purchases. They're, um, you know, they come up the iron pipeline uh, from Virginia, from Florida, from other states. And then they're used in crimes here where they're then intercepted by law enforcement agencies. And they'll now be reported by DCJS um, if, if that bill is uh, signed into law. Um, but the thought is the manufacturers and the sellers have created the conditions for this, this nuisance to the public that is endangering both health and safety. And they're doing so by not preventing straw purchases, not um, preventing. Jump in real quick. Yeah. S straw purchases twice. I've I've heard that, but yeah. for the uninformed, aka me, yeah. what do you what is meant by that? Straw purchases. You're a gun manufacturer. <laughs> straw purchases are when I'm buying it on behalf of somebody else, so that I can pass the check and take possession of the weapon, but then sell it. Um, to another person or give it to another person who might not be able to pass a background check. So it is creating a uh, an illicit market for, for firearms that are legally purchased. So their contention and the, the intent behind the bill is that 
there have been points of failure and the, that the consumers and New Yorkers have been failed by the manufacturers and the sellers not living up to their standards in how they've created the, the firearms, um, stored them, sold them. And the culmination of those failures has then had direct harm on New York's New Yorkers, including local governments, including individual citizens, and that there ought to be a way for people to be able to hold them accountable via the court system. And in this case, to by civilly, you know, filing a suit against them for damages related to um, the harm or the um, deaths or other things that are caused by uh, their, the use of their products. Um, It is, you know, very difficult in terms of law and policy to craft something that I think would be able to to balance all of the equities in this way. However, um, it is something that I think, you know, the civil litigation process has been used um, for most other American industries and products to make sure that that uh, Americans have a way to hold people accountable. And so it is not um, as if this is a novel concept of accountability. It's that the industry has been treated with uh, a special status, um, and that is now being called into question. And just to supplement what, what Joe was saying, um, there is a feeling that that the ATF at the federal level has has in some way um, not enabled, but hasn't been as quick to act or as, as strict on some of these manufacturers and retailers as they could have been. So um, even in this Zellner, Zellner Myrie and, and Pat Fahey bill, um, Senator Myrie and, and Assemblymember Fahey, the, they cited a report um, that was released in May of this year, w- relatively comprehensive, put out by The Trace and USA Today. And that studied uh, ATF. ATF is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosive. It's the federal, regu- regular, federal regulatory agency for, for firearms. They released a report, Trace and U- USA Today, um, citing or on ATF citations to firearm owners across the country and found that ATF was quite forgiving, I'd say, of sellers who violated certain regulations. Again, this was this was cited in the legislation when they were, you know, speaking about some of the impetus for for why they acted. Um, there were businesses that didn't conduct background checks, didn't log sales properly, and were cited for this, didn't log transfers between uh, firearms to different owners, allowed purchasers to buy guns in quick succession, all these illegal activities. Uh, and even after some of these businesses had been cited multiple times by the ATF, the agency still didn't revoke their their license to sell. So some of these businesses that the ATF let slide ended up being parts of large-scale gun trafficking networks, uh, moving firearms between states on the iron pipeline, as Joe is referring to. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if other legislators you know, saw that report and, and tried to act in a, in a similar way. But you're right, it goes exactly back to what, to what Joe was saying about how you really have to manage all the equities of this particular uh, policy problem, one that's more complex than I think people would would initially believe. And I think, you know, that actually leads well to the last bill that had been enacted as a part of the budget, which is, you know, legislators who are up here in Albany and now returning to their districts, they um, they are grappling with gun violence as it happens in their community on the weekends and and really having to be the the face of state government in so many ways to their constituents. And so one of the things that has been a longstanding priority for both the Senate and the Assembly has been community-based violence inter- interventions and interruption work. And this year, the 
both the Senate and the Assembly had uh, additional funding that they had proposed in their one house resolutions as a part of the budget process. And then there was a new um, a new act that was established as a part of the, the budget, which is the Community Violence Intervention Act, which was sponsored by Senator Myrie and included in a part of as a part of the the final budget budget package. And really it creates stable support and a network for hospital-based violence interruption programs and community-based violence intervention programs. And it uses Federal Victims of Crime Act funding as a stable source for that funding. I think you know, the state has really led the way and the Division of Criminal Justice Services has, you know, completely overhauled the way that community-based violence interruption work is implemented. Um, so the state has SNUG programs, which they sponsor in 11 sites across the state. And with roughly, I believe it's three and a half to $5 million, um, provides direct services in the community to community-based groups that go out and, uh, and disrupt the cycle of violence. They identify people who are likely to retaliate if, in case something happens or are likely to be involved in, in violence to begin with, and they really structure um, interventions to make sure that they're not pursuing those paths, so that they're able to amicably resolve conflicts. And this SNUG program has been nationally recognized by um, uh, many different reports and, uh, and accrediting bodies as one of the best models in the country. And one of the things that makes it so remarkable is the oversight and accountability that's built into the system. So the division has statewide hiring standards, training standards. They make sure that each of the communities is learning from one another so that they can tailor their interventions um, and their outreach to the community in, in new ways uh, that are connecting to young people who are disproportionately involved in this violence and victimized by this violence. And it is... Um, it's been a, a tr tremendous program and building upon that the city has their own program that they administer. And so this funding is coming at a time where there's also likely to be additional federal funds that are going to be made available to different states. And so all of this is a through, through the American rescue plan. Yes. Okay. And so there, there's going to be a, an enormous influx in federal funds in addition to the existing state funds that are going to be used for community-based violence interruption work. And we are you know, tracking that closely, but also really, you know, we believe that it can be a, a way to mobilize change within each of the communities and also have groups that stand up and lead the charge in identifying the, um, the, the key actors and the key victims who um, are likely to, to be with each community. So it's, it's going to, um, be a, a continued topic of interest, I think, for legislators. Um, and as we get to each year's budget, uh, will be something that we'll we'll watch closely and that will be discussed closely. But it is, um, it's really a, a, it's great to see that this is being reflected now. I, I think my one question uh, from having reviewed the bill is just any eligibility concerns around using a federal source of funding. You know, a lot of them have um, provisions attached to them. You know, they can be used for this, but they can't be used for that. And so I think that's one area where um, program administrators will have to sift through and make sure that it's allowable uses. Um, but the intent is um, the intent is, is certainly laudable and uh, will likely make a, a huge difference in these, in these uh, neighborhoods. And this SNUG program, SNUG is? Gun spelled backwards. Right. Uh, that's the, the acronym. So that's the, that's the session, right? That's, that's, you know, those are the sort of standout pieces of legislation that have come out of 2021 um, in New York State. Where does the state go from here? 
So I would say, you know, two of the priorities that the governor had set out in his state of the state were sharing crime gun data, which it sounds like we're going to have a reporting requirement. Um, So that seems to be one area where there could be additional movement to require more submission of crime guns and ballistics to ATF and to other places so that we have better reporting that's available from DCJS or other agencies. And then establishing a domestic violence misdemeanor. there is a way to do it now that's a a pretty um, involved court process. Um, And when that uh, is not followed, then there is not a person-specific prohibitor labeled on an individual who might be convicted of a domestic violence misdemeanor. And so that's legislation that the governor has called for for several years. Um, And so that's one that I think is always um, likely going to be under debate. But in general, as we look to what's going to happen over the next few months. We know that the legislative session has come to a close. We know the bills that are, um, you know, have been passed that we talked about, ghost guns, firearm industry immunity, the outstanding warrants bill, um, DCGS quarterly reports, um, all of those will be sent to the governor's desk for signature and action before the end of the year. Um, the community-based violence and intervention bill was already enacted as a part of the budget. Um, so that is really setting for a you know, a, a pretty um, busy rest of the year in terms of the governor's um, review of, of these bills and his signature veto or, or chapter amendments. Thanks again to Joe Popkin, Executive Director of the Regional Gun Violence Research Consortium and Director of Policy and Practice at the Rockefeller Institute, and Nick Simons, Project Coordinator at the Rockefeller Institute. Check out expert analysis from the consortium's gun violence researchers by visiting our website, rockinst.org backslash gun violence. You can also follow along with the consortium on Twitter by searching at rockgunresearch, all one word. Thanks for listening. I'm Joel Torado. Until next time. Policy Outsider is presented by the Rockefeller Institute of Government, the public policy research arm of the State University of New York. The Institute conducts cutting-edge, nonpartisan public policy research and analysis to inform lasting solutions to the challenges facing New York State and the nation. Learn more at rockinst.org or by following Rockefeller Inst, that's I-N-S-T, on social media. Have a question, comment, or idea? Email us at communications at rock.suny.edu.